On this episode of Musonomics. Honestly, I think that's, a, yeah, I think it's really hard to just sustain yourself solely on being a songwriter right now. I think you'd have to get pretty creative to try to make that happen. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. And that was songwriter and recording artist Ari Leff talking about the subject of today's show, how difficult it is to pay your bills as a songwriter in the modern era. He wrote and recorded the song we're listening to right now, Re-Forget. It's curious and alarming, but in our current copyright and royalty system, it can be nearly impossible for a songwriter to make a living from their craft. This poses a very real danger to the future of music. If songwriters can't afford to be songwriters, then, well, who will write the songs? So why is it this way? Was it always this way? And perhaps most importantly, what changes need to be made in order to protect the future of American songwriting? To find out the answers to these questions, on today's episode, Clara Kim, Executive Vice President and General Counsel for ASCAP, and music attorney Chris Castle will shed light on the legal structures that govern music copyright and songwriting royalties. We'll also hear from New Yorker writer John Seabrook and Nashville writer-producer Brett James about the plight of the modern songwriter. But first, Ari Leff records as Lauv, that's L-A-U-V. His debut single, The Other, has 1.3 million spins on SoundCloud, and 3 million on Spotify. His follow-up single, Re-Forget, has 900,000 listens on SoundCloud and 2.3 million on Spotify, where it topped Spotify's global viral 50 chart. Those numbers don't count download sales on iTunes for the EP, or any of the singles, or any of the streams on Apple Music, Tidal, Deezer, Rhapsody, Pandora, or any place else. Oh, and Ari's a senior at NYU Steinhardt. When did you feel like you really had a hit? I don't know if I really feel like I've had a hit, but I think when I really started to feel like I had a song that was actually really, really doing something in a way that I had never imagined was probably when it started to be tweeted by people like Chloe Grace Moretz and then Liam Payne from One Direction. I think like moments like that, like I remember I got off the plane when I was traveling, I think I was in Scotland and that's when I saw my Twitter exploded with, you know, one of those tweets and just to see all the people reacting to the music was just totally blew my mind. So Ari is getting serious traction with a couple of songs, which is great. Getting a positive response to your work is any songwriter's dream, but it's also any songwriter's dream to get paid, which is much more complicated than getting tweeted about. This is where we run into our first complexity of music royalty payouts. Every song that you hear has multiple parties that have different ownership stakes. The artist who records the song gets a royalty for every digital spin of the record and every paid download. Ari wrote and recorded and performed the songs himself. It was really actually quite astonishing when I started to see the money come in. It felt great. That was for payment as performer and owner of the master recording of the song. The song writer also gets a royalty payout for each spin of the record, but nowhere near as much per spin. 
definitely a little bit different. Um, yeah, that's definitely been a whole different ballpark. Yeah, <laughs> not so impressive. Writing a hit song is nowhere near as lucrative as performing that same hit song. I mean, to just look at, like, if I wasn't the artist of my song, I mean, what I would be experiencing right now would be absolutely nothing. They couldn't even pay, like, a couple of days of my rent, I don't think, off of these couple of songs. Lauv is not alone in his plight. Earlier this month, John Seabrook wrote a piece for The New Yorker entitled Will Streaming Music Kill Songwriting? In the piece, he speaks with Michelle Lewis, a songwriter who writes primarily for other artists and doesn't record, perform, or tour. Here's John Seabrook. I heard this story again and again, that our streaming payouts were just ridiculously small and even non-existent. Literally, we would sit there and look at YouTube and look at 100 million, 200 million hits, and they still didn't have a check. And it just seemed like, okay, if this is the way the future is going, and that's the way all people are going to get their music, then what's going to happen to songwriters? Though recording artists like Taylor Swift and Tom York from Radiohead get all the headlines when they complain about streaming rates. It's the little guys that are writing music for other artists that are truly bearing the brunt of a financial squeeze. But the songwriter's struggle isn't a new phenomenon. Songwriters have been fighting for a fair royalty rate since before royalty rates were even established. In terms of songwriters' royalty payments, the 19th century was kind of a a wild west. For his story in The New Yorker, Seabrook looked back at the life of Stephen Foster, the father of American music and the most famous songwriter of the 19th century. Foster wrote over 200 songs over the course of his short life, many of which remain deeply rooted in the public consciousness even now, nearly 150 years after they were written. He wrote Oh Susanna, Old Folks at Home, Beautiful Dreamer, and this song, Camptown Races. Despite the indelible mark Stephen Foster left on the tradition of American songwriting, he died in 1864 in New York at the age of 37, with not much more than a few cents and some Civil War script to his name. You know, he never really got paid. He made some money, unfortunately made him for minstrel shows. That was the best money he made. But that wasn't very much compared to the amount of money that the songs that he wrote ended up making for, you know, promoters and performers and and their owners and so forth. Stephen Foster's life and career exposed a glaring problem in early American songwriting. Songwriters had little to no control over the performance of their work and it was nearly impossible to make a living from it. That would all begin to change early in the 20th century. The Copyright Act of 1909 was really the first sort of systematic and large-scale attempt to create a landscape of royalty payouts for American songwriters, and it created the concept of mechanical royalties, which is a very big concept in songwriter payouts. The mechanical royalty came about due to the popularity of player pianos that were in many American living rooms and in most saloons, pubs, and other public gathering places. 
So the laws are written to apply to the sales of player piano rolls, and then they were used to govern the sales of records as records became a commodity beginning in the 1930s. Although player pianos are no longer popular, the mechanical royalty is still in use today. Every time a song is used in a recording and sold as a CD or vinyl record, downloaded on a digital music retail site, or streamed through a service like Spotify, the songwriter and their music publisher are owed a mechanical royalty. But there is more to this. In 1889, the public performance royalty had been created, which stated that a songwriter was owed a royalty payment every time a song was performed at a live event or music venue. Today, the performance royalty applies to songs played on AM and FM radio, internet and satellite radio, network and cable television, movies, video games, any place of business that uses music, and in live performance. Although the Copyright Act of 1909 added the mechanical royalty to the already existing performance royalty, there was still a big glaring problem. For all of the live performance venues that existed at the time, there was really no way for each and every songwriter and composer to go and license every venue and collect money from the hundreds of these venues that existed. That's Clara Kim, Executive Vice President and General Counsel for ASCAP, the American Society of Composers and Publishers. ASCAP is the largest PRO, or performing rights organization. It was founded in 1914 to collectively license music rights for songwriters and publishers. So by coming together and licensing the music rights as a group, it avoided the need for having each individual obtain hundreds of licenses. Instead, one group could obtain 100 licenses and then pay out each of its members their share of royalties. It was an important step in creating a support system for American songwriters, and it created a system that functioned well enough for its time period. But technology waits for no copyright law, and the dawn of the age of radio was right around the corner. Commercial radio came along in the early 1920s, and in the 30s, radio was kind of a big deal. But the copyright and royalty system of the time, designed for the age of player pianos, sheet music, and live performances, was ill-equipped to handle the new challenges that radio presented. Here's John Seabrook again. By the 1940s, radio had become such a big thing. Really, the 30s, the royalty payout situation had to be adjudicated. And so added to the 1909 Copyright Act was a set of amendments that governed performance royalty payouts. And some of those laws have been set in place. But with radio, those payouts became much bigger than they had before. So through a series of judicial decisions, the rates were, uh, were established and added to the umbrella of the 1909 Copyright Act. And that basically has lasted to this day. But that's not the only lasting change to music copyright that radio brought about. Let's go back to Clara Kim. At the time in 1941, radio was the big player in terms of mass market 
consumption of music, and they were engaged in a negotiation with ASCAP. And in this great negotiation, the radio station owners weren't happy with the way it was going. So they went to the Department of Justice and asked for an investigation of ASCAP. In order to resolve the legal disputes and issues that were raised in the investigation, ASCAP agreed to a settlement, essentially, and the settlement is what became the consent decree. As a result, we entered the world of the consent decree for performance rights for songwriters and publishers. The consent decree of 1941 has had a profound effect on the songwriting industry to this day, and not necessarily in a positive manner. Because BMI, another PRO, was still in its infancy at the time, the Department of Justice put certain restrictions on the way that ASCAP could operate. One of the primary features of the consent decree was that any music user that asked for a license could get one. So automatically, by asking for a, a, an ASCAP license, a music user would have the right to use all the music in the ASCAP repertory. The second feature is that if ASCAP and the music user couldn't agree on a royalty rate, that ASCAP and the music user would be able to go to rate court. And the rate court is a very interesting and unique entity because it's a single federal judge that's appointed for an indefinite period of time, which essentially means their lifetime. The same judge for ASCAP would, for the entire tenure of their judgeship, determine what the rates should be for the ASCAP license. The consent decree of 1941 made it so that anyone could license music from ASCAP as long as they paid for an ASCAP license. And it restricted ASCAP's ability to negotiate rates on behalf of their members. So if ASCAP and, say, Pandora can't come to an agreement on a royalty rate, Pandora can go to rate court where a judge will set the royalty rate, functioning, in theory, as a stand-in for the free market. After 1941, BMI, a new PRO, entered the market and was subsequently given its own consent decree and its own rate court judge. These consent decrees remain in effect today and have been only minimally adjusted for our new music consumption landscape since 1941. As music lawyer Chris Castle points out, that has created a problem. The consent decrees themselves have not been really brought up to date in a really long time. So this puts the rate court judges in the position of trying to determine what a willing buyer, willing seller royalty rate would be in a free market that hasn't been a free market in, you know, 75 years. So it's kind of a legal fiction that the rate courts decide a market rate since there really isn't a market rate. Back when the consent decrees were created, the landscape for music licensing was very different. There was very little competition, and the licensees were not the huge media companies they are today. In fact, because ASCAP and then BMI aggregated so many individual rights into a collective, the consent decrees addressed any antitrust issues. But since then, the power dynamics have switched. Now, the songwriters are the little guys that need protection from the corporations that want to use their music. But the consent decrees don't provide that. Here's Clara Kim. 
just by way of example, in the last Pandora litigation, all of the relevant parties spent upwards of tens of millions of dollars to uh, adjudicate the issues. And it also clogged up the judicial system for two plus years, costing taxpayers money. So if you can imagine, every time we go to simply negotiate a license, if you have to incur that kind of expense and that much time goes by, it just is not efficient and it didn't result in what we think was a fair rate for the ASCAP members. And here's Chris Castle. So in other words, Pandora goes to ASCAP and BMI, and if they believe that they can get a better deal in rate court, or they use litigation as a hammer to get better rates, they're not really going to negotiate in a realistic way. Those negotiations are really just kind of a check-the-box operation so they can just go, go get into the rate court. The idea here is that the consent decrees unintentionally allow royalty rates to be suppressed, meaning songwriters aren't getting a fair rate for their work. Because of the existence of the consent decrees in their current form, Certain publishers, and they are very large publishers, have attempted to withdraw from ASCAP and BMI. Well, they've attempted to withdraw partially. In other words, they said, we want to stay in ASCAP and BMI for everything except digital. And one of the reasons they wanted to do that is because they didn't want to get drawn into this kind of forum shopping that some of the digital services do with the decision to blow past negotiation and go straight to rate court. This, of course, undermines the bureaucratic authority of the rate court. And you can think maybe that was a reason. I don't know what the rationale was necessarily. But in the Pandora ASCAP case in particular, the rate court judge said that either the publishers had to withdraw entirely or you had to stay in entirely. You couldn't just withdraw partially. The so-called decision, all means all. Yeah. And, you know, there's a real open question as to whether that's correct. You know, I mean, copyright is a bundle of rights. The PROs themselves are an example of the bundle of rights because they're just licensing the performance right. So it's like saying you can have a bundle of rights, except if you try to withdraw your bundle, your stick from the bundle, then once you're in, you're in. So not only are the consent decrees altogether antiquated, they're nearly inescapable. To add insult to injury, the way we consume our music has changed drastically over the years. We live in a world now where the album has become unbundled. And the unbundling of the album has been not such a good thing for songwriters. Here's John Seabrook. The way that mechanical royalties work on the album side is that if you were a songwriter with a song on an album, you got paid basically nine cents per copy of that album. And it didn't matter if your song was the hit song that sold the album or was just a throwaway song on the album. You got paid regardless. And so album sales were an enormous boon for songwriters. And as uh, with iTunes and now with streaming, album sales have really declined. And with that has gone that mechanical royalty income. That's the first piece of what's changed. And then, of course, the second piece of what's changed is that the rise of streaming music. And there, the rules are very different than on terrestrial radio. The on-demand streaming services we're speaking of, Spotify and Apple Music, Rhapsody and Tidal, 
and services like that rather than the radio services like Pandora, they do pay a form of a digital mechanical license, but the rates are different. There are two sets of copyrights, the composition, which is what the songwriter owns, and then the recording, which is what the label and occasionally the artist owns. On the terrestrial radio side, it's a very favorable situation for songwriters because there is no payout for the copyrights for the records on radio. It's kind of amazing that when the rules were written in the late 1930s, the music publishers were much more powerful than the record labels, and they were able to get very favorable rates for, for the composition copyrights. But when the rules for streaming were, were written, it's almost exactly the reverse. The owner of the record copyright gets by far the, the greater share of the payout, and the owner of the composition gets a fraction, 10%, really. So it's a vastly different payout for the owners of the composition. And it's a good payout for the labels, and it's actually good for the performers, too, but it's not good for the songwriters. While it may seem that streaming is the enemy, that's not necessarily the case. It would seem that streaming is the future, whether we like it or not. Last week, the RIAA released its data for 2015, and for the first time, streaming was the largest component of industry revenues, comprising 34.3% of the market for recorded music. Songwriters who say, well, I'm just going to keep my stuff off of streaming, in many cases don't have a choice on whether their music is on Pandora, for example, because another aspect of the consent decree is compulsory licensing. And if you agree to let ASCAP or BMI represent your music, you have to license all of your work. You can't pick and choose. So even when Adele or Taylor Swift or Beyonce held their music off Spotify and Apple Music, you could still hear it on Pandora channels that played their music. The way forward for songwriters isn't withholding music from on-demand streaming services, but trying to institute updates and changes in our current copyright system that are more suited to the way we actually discover and listen to music now. This is, of course, easier said than done. There's a couple of things happening in Congress. There's the Fair Play, Fair Pay bill. And then there's another bill, the Songwriters Equity Act, which actually seems to have a little bit more momentum behind it, which is very specifically focused on changing the streaming rates. So I do think that people are becoming aware and that there is some momentum building. But the vested interest on the other side are the big tech companies like Google, Apple, and Amazon. So it's a, it's a very unequal kind of David and Goliath kind of fight, you know, and we're going to have to hope that, that lawmakers do the right thing because there's not a lot of economic muscle on the side of the songwriters. The financial squeeze on songwriters can be felt all the way down the line from new players like Ari Leff to established songwriters like Nashville writer-producer Brett James, who has written huge hits for artists like Kenny Chesney, Jason Aldean, Taylor Swift, Keith Urban, Rascal Flatts, and Carrie Underwood.
I can't think of almost any other business that is completely regulated by the government. You know, I create a product every day. I wrote two songs today, for instance, and we don't get to decide what these songs are worth or what we want to sell them for. I would like to see sort of the entire uh, copyright system kind of blown up and let's start from scratch and figure out something that works. It would be nice if we could just get all the parties that be in a room and let's start with a blank sheet of paper. Okay, how should artists, how should songwriters, how should record labels, how should publishers, how should we divvy all this stuff? What's a fair way to do that? And uh, until we kind of can get to that point, it's going to be tough to make major change. The plight of the modern songwriter is real, and it's not going to improve until we can make comprehensive changes to our copyright and royalty payout system, starting with revising the consent decrees that constrain the way ASCAP and BMI work. This is, of course, a Herculean task, but it's absolutely necessary to the survival of the great American tradition of songwriting. Like we've said several times this episode, if the songwriters can't make a living writing songs, where will the songs come from? That's all the time we have for this edition of Musonomics. Be sure to tune into our next episode where we'll dive into the reinvigorated vinyl record industry just in time for Record Store Day. Thank you to our guests, Ari Leff, who records as LAUV, that's L-A-U-V, John Seabrook from The New Yorker, Clara Kim from ASCAP, attorney Chris Castle, and songwriter Brett James. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry, and by Sam Behrens and Travis Fodor, with help from Matt Lau, Judy Choi, Natalia Karavasili, Jesse Chow, and Samantha Tubner. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. Till next time, from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening to Musonomics.